even in my training, if I'm doing a weighted walking lunge set or something and I'm connecting with my body and I'm seeing it, trying to find ways, I'm re-focusing uh, my energy into something I can control and training the value of self-discipline under that stress or training the value of perseverance. That's a value that's very important to me. What does it take to do the impossible? What does it take to level up your game like never before? What does it take for individuals, for organizations, for even institutions to achieve paradigm shifting? Nothing is ever the same again. Breakthroughs. Our mission is to decode the neurobiology of flow and cognitive peak performance. Access the minds of maverick scientists, groundbreaking innovators, and world-leading experts to understand what it takes to achieve ultimate human performance. So you can feel your best, perform your best, and accomplish your boldest goals. I'm your host, Rian Doris, and together with best-selling author Stephen Kotler, I present to you Flow Research Collective Radio. Hey there, Rian Doris here with Flow Research Collective Radio, and welcome to today's episode with Damien Brown. So Damien's a former professional rugby player, and he is an adventurer in the true old school sense of the word, and we're going to get more into what that means in a moment. Now, Damien is also a fellow Irishman, so I was chuffed to get him on the podcast from that perspective. He is from the same part of Ireland as I am in the west of Ireland. And you will notice that from his accent. Now, Damien really lives and breathes peak performance in many, many respects. So after his career as a professional rugby player, he turned to adventure and set out to achieve a number of wild expeditions, which we're going to be talking through in this episode. The main one that we focus on is him rowing across the Atlantic. Yes, that's right. Him rowing across the Atlantic. He's done expeditions through Kilimanjaro. He's prepping for a summit of Mount Everest tonight. And he is also a business and performance coach as well. He takes the lessons he learns doing his expeditions and adventures into the boardroom as well. So we get into that and make sure that the knowledge transfers for you. Specifically in the episode today, we actually get into a conversation about another altered state of consciousness that is not quite flow, that is distinct, that we don't talk about as much. And that's the state that we engage in at the very peak moments of effort and exertion. Those moments where extreme grit and fortitude is required when we are pushing into the very edge of our capabilities physically. And Damien really lives and breathes within that space and he talks with amazing nuance and subtlety as to how to navigate that space that space of extreme endurance and how to draw lessons from it and apply them more broadly in your life so you're going to be in for a treat you're going to love what we talk about today we also get into loads of detail as to how he rode across the atlantic and what that was like it took him eight weeks and so he tells us about the highs and lows of that and some really epic storytelling in there as well. So you're going to love the episode. Now, before we dive in, I want to mention Stephen's new book, The Art of Impossible. It is a practical playbook for achieving big, bold goals. If you have ever hoped that Stephen's books like The Rise of Superman 
or Stealing Fire have a deeper how-to section, a deeper section that talks about how to apply all of this stuff. Well, that is the Arden possible. He goes into grit, accelerated learning, flow, creativity, innovation, and he talks you through the cutting edge research required to elevate all of those key peak performance skills to achieve goals within your own life. So you're going to love the book. It's been pre-ordering like crazy already. We've had an amazing response. And if you want to pre-order a copy, go to theartofimpossible.com. That's theartofimpossible.com. And you will get also $1,000 worth of peak performance bonuses. You'll get all sorts of cool bonuses from Stephen for free when you pre-order. There's over $1,000 worth. You could see all of those by clicking the link in the show notes or going to theartofimpossible.com. I have no doubt you'll dig them. But for now, let's dive into the episode. You're going to enjoy this one. Damien, it's great to have you here. Welcome to Flow Research Collective Radio. Delighted to have a fellow Irishman, the first one, and uh, you're Irish, I'm Irish, and we're actually from the same little kind of tip of Ireland as well on the west there. So it's a pleasure to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, Pleasure to be here. Yeah, absolutely. It's great to have you here. So to kick it off then, tell us what in your mind you're best known for, because I know there's a number of different things. Folks will have just heard a little bit about you in your bio, but I'd love to know from your perspective what you're best known for. There's two things popping up into my mind when you say that. So I was a professional rugby player for 15 years. I played in the three major leagues in Europe. So there's a league between the Irish teams, the Scottish teams, the Welsh teams, and the Italian teams called the Celtic League or the Pro 14, it's called now. And then there's two other leagues that are uh, major. There's the Premiership in England, and then there's the French Top 14. So I played between all those leagues for like 15 seasons. So that's possibly and probably what I'm most well known for. But then in the last few years, I've done some endurance adventures, maybe extreme adventures. And one of them was to row across the Atlantic solo and unsupported and that has um i suppose brought a a bit of a spotlight on me as well so i'm not too sure which one it is one of them was very quick as in nine weeks and the other one was 15 years so i'd probably (laughs) say the 15 15 year rugby career is probably what i'm better better known for but the position i played in rugby was it's a a workhorse of a position it's the most unglamorous position on the pitch so it's not as if you're up there in lights every week, you know, you kind of, you do the dirty work and then you go home. You don't really get hailed for it. That's for other positions that get the kind of glory and <laughs> and uh, recognition. For folks who are listening, what was the position? And then can you describe a little bit more of what the role of that position is on the field? So the position is called second row or lock. And it's uh, in rugby, there's um, it's split between forwards and backs. And the forwards, a good analogy around that is the forwards are the piano movers and then the backs are the piano players. So the forwards are normally the big, heavy, strong, slow, stubborn, ignorant, determined guys. And the backs are the kind of quick, fast, good-looking guys, you know, <laughs> who, who score, score all the points. So I was right in the middle of the forwards. My position, second row, was like, uh, it's just a workhorse of a position. Your job is to do as much work as you can. 
you know, you got to hit rocks, which is um, you got to, I suppose, function for the good of the team. And you got to do the work that nobody else really wants to do. You know, you're a kind of central cog in winning possession and keeping possession. So you jump in the lineouts when the ball is kicked off the pitch. You jump and catch the ball and you push in the scrums. And then after that, you just go to work and you just keep grinding, 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 you know. So you make tackles, you make carries and you hit rocks. And you do it again and again and again and again until they, somebody pulls you off or the referee blows the whistle and that's the end of the game. No, actually, back when I played when I was very young, before I got injured, I, uh, I used to play the same position. It's definitely a gritty, mm. definitely a gritty mm. position, that's for sure. On the expedition or adventure front, I'm sure people's ears are going to have been perked up by the fact that you said you rode across the Atlantic solo. Can you describe to us, firstly, where you rode from and to? And then what you were in as far as a vehicle. And we'll, we'll dive into that from there. Sure. So I rode from um, one of the Canary Islands off the coast of Morocco, which was called La Gomera. It's one of the smallest Canary Islands and most one of the most westerly. And I rode from there basically 3,000 miles across the ocean to Antigua, which, you know, as we know, is in the Caribbean, a small island in the Caribbean. I was in an, like a bespoke made boat, so an ocean rowing boat simply. It's made for that one purpose, and it's to cross oceans. It was about seven meters long, about 23 feet, and about two meters wide at its widest point. And it had like two cabins on either end. Uh, one was where you had a bit of storage, and the other one was where you lived, where you slept, where you hunkered down in storms or adverse conditions. And that had all your like electrics. So it had your GPS, your radio, uh, sat nav. It had your water maker. So we had a machine on board that would desalinate the seawater because obviously you can't bring enough water for that length of time. It had an AIS, automatic identification system. Basically, it had all my electrics and that was my kind of sanctuary and my um i suppose bolt hole from the madness of what you were experiencing outside and then in between those two cabins then was your open rowing deck that's where your seat was and that's where you got to work every day and rode simply just rode and rode and rode people should definitely look it up well it will attach an image of it somewhere because it's probably a little tough to, to visualize but i mean it's not it's not a million miles from a straight up rowboat though is it not majorly like so um it has a keel, so it had, my one had a keel anyway, so it had a bit of a V-shape, so an Olympic rowing boat would have a more rounded bottom because it skims on top of the water, but I need a keel really to be able to use the conditions, you know, the winds and the currents, uh, and for stability. And then, yeah, outside of that, just apart from the cabins, really, it's, uh, you know, just that's where you're that's where you sleep and that's where you kind of um, ride out any issues. Like So um, apart from that, it's not a big difference, as you said. <laughs> So before we get into the specifics of what it was like to make it through that and, and what sort of mindset you had to be able to make it through that, what was the why in the first place? What gave you the idea to do it? What drove you to do it? What was the catalyst? To do something extraordinary, really, and to live an extraordinary life. I read a book called The Crossing by James Cracknell and Ben Fogel, and they did this row. So James Cracknell was an ex-British Olympian. And they did this row in 2005. And the way they described it, like in the book, was just, it was just basically, they hated each other. It was hardship. It was extreme. It was immense challenge. And all of that appealed to me. I was like, when I read that, I was like, I'm doing this someday. That's, that's a bit of me, you know, that appeals to me. 
at that time, rugby was my number one, like my purpose, my focus. Every ounce of energy was going into being a better rugby player. Even reading those, that was the reason I was reading those books, like because I was looking for ways, I was trying to see what other people were doing in the physical kind of realm to push themselves and improve themselves and what they were getting from it. So that was my intention as a rugby player. So it was only till after rugby was finished that I was going to look at these things. So basically they just got put on a kind of, for want of a better expression, a to-do list. And then when I finished rugby, I gave myself five years. I said, I'm going to do some of these things that I've discovered during rugby that I couldn't do during rugby. I'm going to do them now. I'm going to give myself that time. So I prepared like in many ways, like for example, financially, I prepared the last kind of for the last portion of my rugby career. I just saved money because I had no idea, you know, what some of these things were going to cost and how I was going to fund them. But I was going to prepare myself to be able to take them on at least. And then, yeah, so when I retired, then I started kind of um, approaching them, stepping forward into them and and taking them on. And, and that was the biggest one by a mile that I, um, that was the kind of one, the most daunting one. That was the one that was the most overwhelming. That was the one that took the most time to prepare for. That was the one where I was most out of my comfort zone because I had like no idea I'd never rowed. I'd never uh, been on an ocean rowing boat. I had no maritime experience. I'd never sailed and I can't even swim. Like, so <laughs> all of those things combined, like, you know, there was a lot of internal resistance around uh, during the preparation period. Like it took me about 19 months to prepare for it all. But uh, yeah, because it was so important and meaningful to me, uh, you know, I, I was able to get past all that resistance and those hurdles and start it. That was the kind of hardest thing to get to the start line. Not being able to swim is definitely a, a real cherry on the hardship cake there, for sure. <laughs> what, what was what was in your, like, you know, you're sitting to the modified rowing boat in the Canary Islands and you're taking off. What's your inner dialogue and what are you saying to yourself with those first few rows? So I find that this, that period is incredibly emotional because you've put so much time into getting there. Like I say, sometimes I put every cell of myself into making that happen. And and that's the moment where it's all kind of come to fruition. You know, that's the moment where all the doubt is gone. Like, oh, I'm actually starting this because there's so much doubt during a preparation period. Like if I'm going to actually make it. And and then my, my mindset was, so I was actually part of a race of, um, there's a, an annual race and that year there was 25 boats in the race and those boats ranged from four man boats all the way down to solos like me and there was five solos and I was the last of 25 boats to start and believe it or not my mindset was I want to win this race <laughs> I had absolute belief that I could win the race because I put so much time into my preparation I'd worked so hard and I dug so deep physically and mentally during that time that I actually believed it. And I suppose coming from the background of professional sports, I felt I had a big advantage there in terms of just maybe the mindset that's needed to do something like that. Um, but I was delusional. <laughs> I could not win that race, but I didn't know it at the time. But that was my mindset. So I tore out of the blocks with all that emotion that I talked about and, you know, the anticipation of starting and, you know, saying goodbye to my family on the dock and pushing away and, I just burst out of the blocks and like I went hard at it for six hours and I actually passed four boats in that time. Some of them were pair boats. 
Uh, one of them was even a three-man boat. So I thought I was flying, but then, no, it all started to go wrong after that. <laughs> and so you're out there for what? How many days was it again? 63 days it took. Do you have in top of mind some of the peak highs and lows amidst that 63 days? I've, since I started following you, I've seen I've seen some of them in video form on, on your Instagram, which I definitely recommend people checking out. Well, some of them are, diff- it's difficult to tell whether it's a high or a low. So yeah. I'm curious as to, yeah, what some of those kind of peak experiences were within those 60 plus days. That's very uh, true because it might look like in some of the cases that I'll, I'll get to in a second, they might look like they are lows, but I actually remember them as kind of major parts of my crossing. And now I remember them quite fondly. They're the things I probably talk about most because of what they give me, like through the challenge of them. So the first one I'm talking about was I had a double capsize. So so that the boat I talked about, the, or the boat I was on, and I described to you guys, that is designed to um, self-right because you're going to face storms and it has to be able to kind of uh, self-right, of course, right? So it does that by having the weight on the bottom and the air pockets, which are the two cabins I described on top. So I had a double capsize in a big storm on day 14, and it was like the craziest day of my life. It was just... So first, the first capsize, I was fast asleep, six, seven o'clock in the morning, and I was woken up when I was like, a wave hit the side of the cabin and catapulted me into the other side of my cabin inside and i so i literally woke up when my face smashed off the side of the cabin and then the boat was going uh, like 360 180 degrees and i was kind of going with it in a kind of you know a washing machine i suppose circle and then there's a lot of stuff in that cabin that i need every day like chart plotters and books and piss bottles and all sorts of stuff like it's all in kind of netting down the side of where i sleep so that's kind of coming on top of me the mattress i was sleeping is on top of me some water is getting in from the eyelet of the water maker and you're trying to decipher well firstly what is happening what is this pain why am i kind of in this tumble dryer if you want and what's that liquid that's on my face that's a lot to wake up to as you can imagine (laughs) um uh, that was just bananas. So then the boat self-righted, obviously, and it kind of flattened out, and I had everything on top of me. And then I realized then in a kind of almost, you know, a split second or a nanosecond that that kind of familiar feeling I was getting on my face, that was blood, you know, it was warm and, like, thick and kind of a bit sticky. So that was obviously blood, so that needs to be stopped. And then I need so I just got pressure on that, and thankfully the cuts weren't actually too deep. Uh, and they stopped bleeding pretty quickly. And then it was just about like sorting out the cabin and making sure everything was in place and um, back in its whatever, back in its little net. And then I went outside onto the deck and the whole deck was full of water. Like, I mean, I'd never seen it like that. I, it was a bit of panic initially because I thought, well, can this boat sink? Like, like I it couldn't see my seat. I couldn't see anything. My life raft was hanging half over the edge. My ground anchor was hanging like over on one of my oars, nearly half in the ocean. So I obviously realized I need to get the bilge pump on, which pumps off the water. So I got the bilge pump on, bucketed off a bit of water, put the life raft and the ground anchor back in its place. And then I'm just sitting there like in almost a bit of a state of shock and you're hyper, hyper aware out there because you're in that survival state, you know, 
and anything outside of the unusual like that you haven't heard like so if it's not the wind that you hear every day if it's not the whirl of the water maker if it's not the noise of the oars in the water and the waves lapping or splashing or roaring of the waves you're on it like a shot so i heard this noise that i'd never heard before and my head like just straight on a swivel to what it was and there was a whale <laughs> well it was a dorsal fin of a whale swimming towards the boat and i was like it was just absolutely incredible and um it was like a little adolescent it was wasn't much about the size of the boat and it's it circled the boat like literally circled the boat five times and on its second last rotation it was on my right hand side and i was just in awe of it like i was just i was i was like that's blown away and it stuck its head up and looked at me with its left eye it literally made eye contact with me uh, <laughs> it was just absolutely the most incredible experience i've ever had i i felt like you know it was trying to communicate to me it was trying to it was like almost like it was playful it was like the boat was something it was curious about and and play it kind of wanted to play with it disappeared then and then the rest of the day was absolute survival in this like nine meter waves eight meter waves like and i couldn't i was having major issues with my steering and i was sitting underneath these waves and going up the face of them sideways on they call it beam on because i couldn't get the steering to right the boat i couldn't get the boat like downwind and down waves so i was like mental all day but I, I kept thinking i saw the dorsal fin like in the waves following me you know from time to time during the day now i could have easily just been imagining that but there was something every now and again mm. i think i'd see it you know again like it was kind of reminding me or communicating with me yeah and then i capsized again that day later on that day like so you can see why i call this the craziest day of my life because at that time i was trying to fix the steering actually and i was um the steering is a, it's basically a system that at the end of my foot, there's a panel and I strap into that panel. And when I turn that left and right, the rudder at the back of the boat turns left and right. So what was happening was I was turning the panel, but the boat wasn't reacting. So there was some disconnect between us. And I was trying to figure out what that was and see if I could fix it. So I was kind of down underneath the foot panel trying to see if there was an issue that I could fix. Uh, I was literally in a crouch and I just came out of the crouch because my legs were burning. And as I came out of the couch, I just catch this flash again out of my right eye this time. And I'm on the side of a wave here in the boat. It's kind of like going up a wave like that, you know. So I'm kind of st standing here and I just, what's happened is the wave is breaking over the top of the boat. And I just grabbed the handle behind me instinctively. No idea how or why I just grabbed it. Well, why I kind of do, obviously. But how, I, I had no idea how I knew or did it that in such a split second and i went into the water hanging onto the boat with one hand and uh it was just like time slowed down then underwater and i was just able to like concentrate on one thing i just kept saying to myself squeeze your grip squeeze your grip squeeze your grip because you know that's what i can control in that moment and that's what i had practiced and that's what i visualized happening during a capsize so and i came around like seven eight nine seconds underwater came around the boat self-righted flipped itself and flipped me back up onto the deck still clutching onto that handle uh it just yeah just uh incredible so <laughs> long answer to your question but um yeah that's the day that stands out by a mile and I, I mean it's all in a way it's all highs but you could say it's lows and highs Hey there, Rian Doris here again. Sorry to interrupt Damien for a quick moment. I wanted to remind you that if you want to 
pre-order stevensviewbookedtheartofimpossible.com, we have over $1,500 worth of peak performance bonuses that you can access immediately. They will get dropped straight into your inbox just for the price of the book, which is about 30 bucks. So it's a really, really super deal. And it's theartofimpossible.com to claim the bonuses. The bonuses include all sorts of cool things like secret chapters from Stephen's past books that he never ended up releasing. They include an impossible goal setting masterclass, how to set goals the right way. They include a course on mitigating distraction and maximizing attention to accelerate into flow and much more. So you're going to love the bonuses. Go to the artofimpossible.com or click the link in the show notes and you can check out and get them dropped straight into your inbox. Alrighty, back to the episode. Yeah, peak experiences, definitely one way or another, that's for sure. To go from a high like that, what are some of the more average days there? You know, are you are you rowing literally all day long? Have you got audio books that are kind of keeping you going? Like what's an average kind of day in the boat in contrast to obviously a day like that, which is just mm. you know, mind-blowing, difficult to even imagine? So a contrasting day to that is like flat cam, very hot, because you're not that many degrees above the equator when you mm. go on this route, you know? And it's just mundanity. It's just grind. It's just rowing for hours on end literally kind of feeling the sun rise at like 7 a.m at like two o'clock and as it goes over throughout the day it's passage you know above you you can nearly tell the time of day by where it's hitting your skin now i had a routine where i didn't roll like constantly you know so i'd roll for two hours and then take a break and have something to eat maybe well it depends lunch or dinner and then i'd get back on the oars and roll for two hours and then take another hour's break maybe get a bit of sleep a bit of food uh, just to get off the oars and get off that position you know because there's a lot of issues that come with your skin in terms of like pressure sores and sea sores i didn't take well enough care of my undercarriage earlier in the row so towards the end of it i got big big issues with sea sores which is like the salt crystals calcifying on your skin and then it becomes like sitting on sandpaper uh, and when you're sitting like for i was trying to row about between 12 well around 12 hours a day that was the goal most days when you're sitting for 12 hours a day and it's uncomfortable it just chips away at your resolve you know it's just it's constantly there there's a kind of conversation going on in your head and it's not a good one like you know it's very outcome orientated it's very like this is uncomfortable and you've got a thousand miles to go what's it going to be like in a week what's it going to be like in two weeks you know it's not as if you can just stop rowing you can't just stop like you have to if you want to get to the end you got to row so it's just trying to control that and that's very difficult you know when you've got so far to go and it is so uncomfortable and that was a grind, an absolute mental, mentally more than physical grind. Yeah, well, you mentioned there about the fact that you could be utterly exhausted and bored and in pain. And you know you've got not a few hours left or 30 minutes like a tough gym session, but literally like months or, or six <laughs> weeks or whatever it is. What is your inner dialogue? What's your self-talk in those kinds of situations? Firstly, you got to be aware of it, right? Because so if you're not aware of it, you can't change it. So, and then it's just about concentration. What are you concentrating on? Are you concentrating on the outcome? Well, what can you do about the outcome? Nothing. You got to bring yourself back to now concentrating on the right things. I found 
does. So uh, there's four things I used to use out there that I concentrate on that would just bring me back to the present moment and, and out of that kind of, you know, the excuses or the um, outcome orientation or um, whatever. So that was my body position of what I was doing. So my body position and technique. So just kind of linking in with what my body was doing down to really specific details. You know, I'd concentrate on a body part. It's um, motion its range of motion or a muscle and feeling that muscle work. So quad was a good one because you know, of rowing, you know, so I like absorbing in my quad on the catch and then powering out through my quad and just having that concentration on, I call it body position and technique, the technique of what I'm doing. Again, it just took me out of that outcome orientation, which is very stressful and, you know, um, a kind of heavy place mentally uh, and bracket back into the present moment, which is a much more neutralized state, I find. So I have that. And then the second one was the effort. How much effort am I putting through a, my grip, for example, or my drive or my left quad or my left scap on the, on the pull? You know, again, and literally feeling that effort, you know, and feeling uh, myself put in a little bit more effort, just a tiny bit more effort, brought me back to that present moment. Lovely kind of mind-muscle connection, nice neutralized state and something I could control. And the third one is breath. That's always within my control. So what's that doing? What's the, can I calm my breathing a little bit? Is it mouth-to-mouth? Is it mouth, can I bring it to mouth-nasal or nasal-nasal? And just can I get a little bit more out of my breath? Again, just brings me back to the present moment. And the last thing then is myself talk. What what am I saying to myself here? Like, am I am I being nice to myself? Am I um, feeding myself with kind of positive self talk? You know, or am I um, getting down on myself? Am I beating myself up? And if I am, can I change that? And how can I change that? Well, I had a nice process around that about like saying something quite well, very brutal to myself, cutting that negative chatter and then reaffirming it with some positive affirmations that I would have used in my training. Loads of threads there I want to want to dig into. Let's start with breath. One of the interesting things I've I've seen when you you record your your training and your preparation for expeditions on Instagram is that you are big on nasal breathing at periods of very high intensity. Can you talk to us about the rationale behind that and sort of what you are aiming for in terms of optimal breathing technique and maybe what effect it has on the nervous system. Yeah, well, it's particularly for me, it's a particular focus just in. So the way I like to prepare for my expeditions is um, I like to stress my body and my and particular my mind because I know my mind is going to be stressed going to have to have uh, resets and redirects available. So how do I get good at them? I need to practice them, right? So I got to push into these areas, these edges of my capacities in training, or I got to peek up to them. I got to get to them and then maybe come back a little bit. So a big focus of mine around breath in those positions. So say I'm coming off an interval on an erg, it's that 30 seconds just as I finish where breath is and concentration on breath is absolutely paramount because that's when I'm at my weakest. That's when my mind wants out or that's when I'm at my most vulnerable. So my mind will or find a way out or will look for ways out, will look for ways to make me stop this stress. So by redirecting my concentration to my breath, that brings me back to the present moment, makes me uh, control that moment of weakness, which is 
the first 30 seconds, which is at its strongest, that first 30 seconds after a very intense interval. Because I got more to do here, you know, I got more coming and that's all my mind is thinking about. Gee, like it's, that was so hard, like to get through that interval and you've got six more of these. Are you serious? Like it just wants out, out. It's looking for ways. It just wants the stress to stop, stop. So how do I do that? I find breath is the most powerful one in my, I call it my, obviously my recovery period. And especially in that first 30 seconds. So just by, I prepare that as well before the session. So I pre-prepare my awareness for that. So I know it's coming. So I'm able to redirect my mind to the concentration quicker. Because if I don't, I leave it to chance a little bit, you know. Uh, and that's when I can break. I can break in those edges because it's so fucking stressful and so hard. So I, I love breath. And then what I think about then is I have some cues and questionings around that. For example, a cue would be um, calm the breathing, calm the mind. Again, that just makes my awareness come to, makes me aware of what I want to do, brings my concentration to that controllable breath. Uh, and a question would be, can I change my breathing here from mouth to mouth? Because it will be mouth to mouth at the end of a, something so extreme. But can I change it or how quick can I revert to nasal mouth? And then if the rest period is long enough, nasal, nasal. Again, it's just about finding ways through these very, very stressful states, which I'm going to get on mountains or I'm going to get on the ocean. I love that. Uh, that's great. So intercepting the stress response by resisting the urge to gasp and mouth breathe and then nasal, nasal, ideally nasal, nasal breathing instead, mm. obviously, as you're saying, is immensely powerful as a, as a mental tool to mitigate stress. And also, I mean, mm. James Nestor wrote a great new book called Breath. That was just the title of Breath. I think it was the, the subtitle is The Last science of an ancient art or something like that but but he also makes the point that nasal breathing actually oxygenates you more rapidly and more efficiently through less total breaths than mouth breathing and so it's sort of it sounds like it's doing double duty there where it is actually oxygenating you more effectively even though it doesn't feel like yeah. it and it's also a mental exercise to resist the they're like, <gasps> kind of just yeah. gasp it in. So that's super interesting. And also I've been finding, I've been actually, thanks to watching your videos, whenever I'm exercising and things like that now, and I'm pushing up into to peak exertion, I try and maintain nasal, nasal. And I've found that if you can sustain that in peak physical exertion, it sort of transfers and you're able to intercept the stress response more effectively outside of, you know, physical exertion and in other moments of stress that yes. crop up, you know, so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's that like, it's that wiring, isn't it? So you're practicing that behavior. So you're rewiring yourself. So then when it comes to daily life stuff and you're aware, hang on, I'm mouth to mouth breathing here. So I'm in that stress state. I'm in a, it could be a very minor, could be anxiousness or something, but it's very minor stress. And then all of a sudden you just bring your uh, concentration to nasal, nasal and it's just, your, yeah, your state just changes, you know. Totally, to yeah. it, Dr. Andrew Huberman, who's a, an advisor on our board, he's he's a fan of yours as well, actually. By the way, yeah, um, amazing guy. He's he's amazing, absolutely. But one of the other ways that he recommends people intercept the stress response is with ice cold water. If you can resist, if you can consciously resist the shiver response, it's a sort of a similar thing there, where you're sort of intercepting the automatic stress response. Obviously, gasping is the first example and shivering is the second example. And if you can intercept that, it just, yeah, as we're saying, it improves your ability to, to regulate your nervous system consciously and by choice. But the next question to bring us back to the row, 
Next question I wanted to ask you was actually about time and perception of time, because I mean, again, as we talked about, it's, you know, you're out there for, I think, what's that, over eight weeks. And if you're rowing 12 hours a day, as you said, it's monotonous. What is your sense of time? Are you getting into times, getting into sort of states of flow where hours are going by in what feels like minutes? Or is it the opposite of that? Or, 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 or what, what was the sense of time while out there? <laughs> Rarely enough, I must say. At times, I wished I could, but it was because of the constant discomfort. It was very hard to avoid that because, or sorry, that was a manipulator on my focus because you're in this just, you know, and sometimes it became quite painful. Like I remember around the turn of the 30s, so 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, all those days were like, I was just in, I was in pain, like, you know, from sitting and I, I was, I didn't really know I was looking for solutions all the time and each time I'd look for a solution, it would fail. You know, you can imagine during those days, they're, they're long. It's just a constant battle, a constant fight to redirect your mind away from the discomfort and the pain and try to uh, a state where, you know, like you said, before you know it, your two hour block is finished. But those two hour blocks just became such grinds. Like, I mean, particularly and i understand this is psychological but particularly the last half an hour you know it's just everything every cell in my body was screaming at me just ah that's enough you know we can call it a day who's going to know who's going to look who's go who sees you like who's going to know you've only rode 90 minutes in this block and you know even though two hours but i know right i know i see uh that like last half an hour just a constant battle of redirecting my mind to some of the stuff i talked about earlier uh redirecting my uh concentration away from the discomfort be it low level which it was for a while but then it got really bad like I had these huge pressure sores like on my arse and sitting on them was just it became agony after a while you know so it's hard to avoid that it's really hard to avoid that pain and it keeps kind of breaking you know, it breaks any flow that you might get into any concentrated state. And then you just got to go through the process again of kind of resetting and redirecting. Yeah, having, I mean, as if the physical exertion isn't enough, having the sores on top of that. And I can totally imagine how that massively breaks a state of flow or, or you know, or some kind of a rhythm that you get into. Mm. That is that is rough. What was the state you were in? It sounded like the kind of state you're aiming at is not necessarily even flow, but more like a state of extreme mindfulness of everything and process orientation rather than outcome orientation mm. is that where you were trying to direct things yeah that's well said i think i just tried to come back to the process all the time because that's what i could control right instead of thinking about what i found myself doing during the role was thinking about when i'm going to finish like am i going to finish in 58 days or 59 days and constantly thinking about numbers uh, and that had a a low level negative effect, you know, on me because I was concentrating on something outside my control. So then it was just trying to bring it back to process. So what's the process here? You can control the concentration on the process. That's what's going to dictate, you know, the, the effort and energy you put into the process is going to dictate when you finish, not thinking about it, you know, mm. uh, not looking at the outcome. So it's just breaking that down then to the finest details, you know, position and technique and effort through the oars and trying to get better and trying to be more efficient with what I wrote and be more efficient with my steering and trying to figure all that out. Cause I actually lost my steering on day 17. 
and I was already doing it. So there's you have different options when you go to Rowan Ocean. You can have a, an autopilot, but I I believe in hard. I believe in challenge, and the harder something is, the better it is for you. So I wanted this to be as hard as possible. So I decided to do it as rawly as possible with foot steering alone, which is kind of the traditional way to do it. Uh, and then I lost that <laughs> that broke complete um, steering failure on day 17. So. So now I had to row with the oars. So there was a lot to learn there. You know, I'm trying to steer the boat with the actual oars. So one oar blade is always acting as a kind of four rudder. So that's a skill, right? And you have to pick that over time. And I just concentrating on that and trying to get better at that every day. So I am that little bit more efficient. So that means I finish a bit earlier, uh, a bit quicker. I get across this ocean a bit quicker and, and, and back and hopefully reap the benefits of actually you know, achieving something extraordinary like that and going through something very, very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. And the other thing you mentioned, which I was intrigued by, was visualization and that the visualization you did as part of your prep helped with that kind of automatic response during the capsize. So what was the visualization that you did and and yeah. what are, you know, what's your use of visualization as a tool in general? When I go into these kind of endeavors, like the first question I ask myself is what can stop me achieving what I want to achieve, you know? So try and figure out where my weaknesses are in, uh, or the challenges are in the journey before it even starts and then kind of mitigating them as I go along. So the clear one for me was, well, you can't swim. So what's going to stop you achieving what you want to achieve if you get separated from that boat, right? So that's number one priority. Don't get separated from the boat. So how do you do that? Well, you wear, I wore a climbing harness every day. And from the climbing harness, I clipped in a, a line to a thing called the jack stay, which is just another line on the boat that you could literally hang a car off. You know, it's so strong. So that's my one point of contact. No matter what happens, if a rogue wave hits the boat or you know, out of nowhere and I get capsized. I've always got one point of contact. But I'm a big believer in, like, controlling what you can control. So, you know, it mightn't happen. It probably will not happen. But what what if that breaks? What if something in that harness goes or you've been sloppy? So I prepared a visualization around what are the possibilities of getting capsized and when's that going to happen what's going to happen in a storm and the boat's going to be turned over what does that look like so i just visualized that whole process of what i thought it would look like and what i saw was me rowing kind of going up a wave and then the wave coming over this is what i visualized the wave coming over the boat and i just dropped the oars and then i reach out for the two jack stays so there's two lines that i mentioned one of them going down either side of parallel to me so i'd reach out i grabbed those just before the kind of boat capsized and my visualization was as long as I have one point of contact as long as my grip doesn't break I've always got one point of contact with the boat and I will not lose contact with the boat right so okay it didn't happen exactly like that as I described but at the same time I used to visualize and actually put force through my grip when I used to do this visualize just saying to myself, squeeze your grip, squeeze your grip, squeeze your grip, and seeing that actual happen, like seeing the wave coming over the top of the boat and feeling myself while seeing myself squeeze my grip, squeeze my grip. And then when I actually went into the water, my mind switched straight to that, you know? So I think it's fair to say, fair to say I should have been in a like panic. It should have been in this internal chaos like because i'm literally hanging on to a boat with one hand underwater but i was so calm and so focused 
just on that one thing I'd visualized or that one action that I had put into my visualization, which was squeeze your grip, squeeze your grip. And I remember like during the visualization, I could feel that link between the thought, like nearly running down my arm into my uh, grip. And when I was underwater, I could just, it linked up straight away. You know, I was able to link up with that thought, squeeze your grip, and then the action and actually felt my grip get stronger while I was underwater. Who's to say I would have had that focus and calmness to be able to focus underwater if I hadn't done the visualization, if mm -hmm. I hadn't stepped it through like and put as much detail into it as I could. Another thing I also did, it's not really part of the visualization, but a thing I did to prepare for that as well, like being a non-swimmer, was for me when I'm out of my depth, it's there's a little bit of panic because I can't swim, right? So I get into the water all the time. I love it, love getting into the cold water, but I, I get in with my feet on the sand and my head out of the water, right? So when the minute I'm out of my depth, I do get a bit of panic because of my lack of um, skill with, like I love being in the water, but my lack of skill with. So I knew I was going to be, if I go into the water, it would be panic thing. So I would panic. So what I did was I used to go out to uh, the beach in Black Rock in Galway and in my own depth, I just kind of plunge into the water and kind of go into a fetal position mm. and tell myself to be calm and try and control my mind while without that lack of oxygen that I was underwater. And I just do it again and again, you know, irregularly, but two or three times a week because I'd always go to the water anyway. I just practice it, just telling myself to be calm and trying to increase the amount of time I could spend underwater in that kind of calm state before obviously my breath was um, telling me to, you need to, you need to get some oxygen into, you know. That's a great example of uh, one of the grit skills Stephen talks about. So he's, Stephen's got a new book coming out called The Art of Impossible and it focuses on a number of different elements of peak performance. One of the huge ones is grit, which obviously I think <laughs> relates very, very heavily to yourself. But one of the, the ways of training grit that he talks about is having the grit to train your weaknesses. And the example he always uses is that to prepare for a speech, he'll do it with no notes and no slides with a weight vest on his back. And uh, he's got like 20 dogs. He runs a dog sanctuary and with his 20 dogs while running up a hill on two hours sleep. And he knows that if he's able to deliver the speech in that setting, he's got it down pat no matter what, if he's in front of a thousand CEOs or whatever, and his slides go off. So it's kind of, it's an interesting, it's kind of a similar-ish type yeah. of, of training for a tricky situation like that. So on the note of grit, I'd love to ask you about, about hardship and grit. Uh, hardship is, is the word you mentioned there or doing hard things. What is it about hardship or tackling things that require a very high level of grit that you find so valuable and that you think is, you know, valuable for human beings in general? I, you've hit the word on the head there that I was going to say. It's because you're training value. You are training discipline of, for example, if you're going through a, let's talk like even in my training, if I'm doing a weighted walking lunge set or something and I'm connecting with my body and I'm seeing it, trying to find ways, I'm refocusing uh, my energy into something I can control and training the value of self-discipline under that stress or training the value of perseverance that's a value that's very important to me and one i really resonates with me so like getting through an ocean row i feel like that 
is going to challenge me and I feel that's going to help me practice a value that, you know, is, is really important to me. So I'm attracted to it. So I, I see great and I feel great value in doing things that are very hard because I know I'm going to be tested. I know I'm going to be, if it's a challenge, there's going to be doubts. There's going to be weakness. There's going to be moments that you want to stop and want to quit. And when I get through those, having persevered, I feel great. I feel great about myself. And I built that association with that like action and the outcome, you know, mm -hmm. to really do something really hard and then have that amazing outcome where I feel great about myself. I grow as a person. Uh, I develop as a person. I develop because I've practice the value that's really important to me and i built that over time so now i'm very attracted to doing things that are really hard like not a i don't have the emotion to do it all the time like on that level of an ocean row but i i can go for something like that once every year or once every two years you know at the same time i can practice in my training for ocean rows i can do that daily and that's just inching me forward and then a big thing like an ocean row might be a, a bigger step forward in my development and my growth as a person and making the most of my life and uh, those things are really important to me what are the biggest things that you found transfer from those kind of states of challenge and hardship into the rest of your life outside of you know an acute state of of challenge it's a little bit like you talked about with Stephen and the speech, like, so it's a calmness. It's mm -hmm. a, a confidence. Everton is easier. Everton is slower. Like you don't, once upon a time, I might've stressed over, I don't know. I, I can't think of something right now, but you know, if having gone through things like this, I've, I don't stress about it anymore because I pushed into those areas. Right. So the accumulation of like building self-belief in yourself, having gone into those things, building self-confidence, having seen yourself react positively under that stress that only you know. Like, first of all, you've probably self-imposed it on yourself. Like, so I was lucky enough to have rugby. It helped so much. It gave me so much in terms of my kind of the way I live my life. That was not self-imposed. A lot of what rugby gave me was imposed on me, but I, you know, because it was so important, I pushed through it. But now what I do, I self-impose it. Uh, and that's even more powerful. Like that is just, once you get through those states of like I talked about negativity and doubt and quit and challenge and weakness, only you know what that felt like. And that feels, to me anyway, that feels really, really, really good. And if you continually do that, you're continually building that relationship with yourself, self-confidence, self-belief, self-esteem, and, you know, ultimately self-worth. One of the uh, kind of general rules of thumb, I suppose, that I like to, remind myself of is that the, the more acute stress you experience, the less chronic stress you end up experiencing as a result of that. Meaning if you, if you expose yourself to very intense bursts of acute stress, like these training sessions you're talking about, or ice baths or whatever mm -hmm. it may be, then the outside of those moments of, of very high engagement, you're, yeah, as you're saying, the level of, of calmness and just being able mm -hmm. to be at ease increase mm. significantly versus being you know it, it allows you to oscillate from a from a nine out of ten stress back to a normal baseline of two out of ten versus being stuck at a five or a six all mm. the time uh, i find as mm. well so yeah yeah i love that, that makes a lot of sense one of the big things we talk about when it comes to flow triggers and, and getting into flow is a trigger called the challenge skills ratio and this is the idea basically that 
flow exists right at the sweet spot between challenge and skills when the challenge of the task exceeds your skill set by just the right amount not so much that it drives you into a state of anxiety and overwhelm but not so little that it's understimulating and you're bored one mm. of the things i imagine that happened after an expedition like the open row or probably some of the other expeditions is that your capacity for challenge expanded significantly did you find that after doing that you know 60 whatever day row it was that doing a you know an hour-long workout became much much more easy or how did it shift your yeah how did it shift your sense of challenge it made me believe that i could do more i was immediately looking for okay what's next <laughs> i believed that i could do things that i couldn't do before you know or you know i i finally answered the question can i ruin ocean and that just built a lot of confidence and a little um and a lot of uh, belief in me and then i was looking for what's next and then that broadened my what could be next you know i what i'm trying to articulate here exactly is before i did the row i had done um, i climbed kilimanjaro uh, probably five or six years before that and i'd really struggled up it and i i'd really had issues at altitudes because of my size and because of my lack of experience and just you know it was i found it very very challenging and uh when i finished the row i had a choice uh, i had two options for what's next for me in my mind and that was do another ocean row because i absolutely loved it and i found the rewards from it extraordinary or climb a mountain climb the biggest mountain on earth mount everest and that thought scared the shit out of me because like the difference between mount everest and kilimanjaro is night and day like i mean and i really struggled up kilimanjaro but I stepped into that. I stepped forward because I believed that I could prepare. I could put in the work to prepare well enough. And I had something within me that I feel like I still haven't done it, but I feel like I can get to the top of that mountain. If you'd asked me before the role, I don't think I would have. I would have said, I don't know. I, like I struggled on a mountain that is uh, like a, they have this rating system. It's a 1A. And now you're looking at a 5E. Uh, it's a big jump, Damien. I don't, you know, so, but I, I yeah, so I suppose it just, it broadened my kind of, my range there of, of what I believed I could do. At the same time, I, you know, in terms of workouts and all that, like our training sessions, they can still be extraordinarily hard. Like, you know, if you're willing to, you know, well, if you have the skill to be able to push into areas physically um and you have the the purpose or the emotional energy to do that like they can they will always that's a great thing about certain types of training sessions um or you know that they will always be accessible no matter how good you are at challenging yourself at an endurance level you know we can always push ourselves really into those like really intense conditioning sessions which are a kind of different requirement physically and mentally you know so they never get easier you just get <laughs> you just get better at pushing yourself and you just get uh, and it almost becomes scarier uh, like i compete on the indoor rowers which is um there's a couple of races i compete in uh, 500 meters and 2000 meters you know on the stationary ergs and the 2k test is the hardest thing mentally in the world by far and the more times I face into it, every time I face into it, it scares me more and more and more, even though I'm getting better and better and better at it. I'm getting quicker anyway, at least, because I know I'm going to push into a place that is mentally 
extraordinarily difficult to spend four minutes in. So the first two minutes, you probably you're not there yet, but then you've got four minutes to grind through chaos internally. Absolutely. And then you get off that and um you know you strive to get better and then you go to repeat it and you go holy shit i gotta go back into that place again so you become more scared because it's a, it's a very daunting place because you're going to see weaknesses in yourself you know you're going to expose corners of doubt and weakness and quit uh, and that's not a nice place to live but the rewards once you push through it are extraordinary and it makes total sense and i can definitely see how those conditioning sessions don't necessarily get the easier yeah yeah they seem they seem rough going so what what's next what's next expedition and adventure wise so i have two uh big ones on the horizon over the next two years so i've got mount everest coming up in april next year 2021 um and then in 2022 i got a big project called uh, project empower which is another ocean row but this time it's the opposite way across the Atlantic. So from the west to the east, from New York, from Manhattan, all the way to Galway, uh, my hometown. And I'm doing it on the west of Ireland. And I'm doing it with a very good friend of mine who's also from Galway. And so I'm doing it at pair. So there's two of us, obviously, this time in the boat. That's a much more difficult route in terms of the conditions you're going to face and the challenges you're going to face from them. And it is it's colder um, in particular, and sea much states colder, are bigger, imagine, much colder. Yeah. yeah. So that's, again, it's just, it aligns with my philosophy. So I want to make it harder. I want to continue to challenge myself because everything that's in my life that's good has come from me challenging myself, you know. Um, so so I, I was looking for an, another ocean row, and I, I just see this one as a big legacy piece for me. Like we're going to, all going well, we're going to row into our hometown after the battle of a lifetime like and that is an opportunity for us to kind of make a a mark on our community you know like um we're wired to emulate as humans you know and if we can't see it you know we can't do it and with the impact like a a site like that two people rowing into their hometown could have on the you know the next generation there that's a real driver for me outside of my own drivers around you know continually to to continually get better and become a better kind of version of damian brown second last question i think what would be some of your biggest advice to folks so we a lot of our our clients are entrepreneurs and leaders and things like that who you know run businesses manage teams are very skilled and have high pressure jobs what would be the single biggest piece of advice you would give those folks in general or maybe you know based on all of your experience uh, expedition and grit wise i think my life changed when I listened to my intuition. I listened to like I was only I was seventeen, so I was I wasn't exactly life changing moment, but maybe it was a life changing moment in terms of just cluing in, uh, giving um, my intuition or my gut a, an airing. You know, I was I was telling me I needed to do something. I needed to get fit because um, I was half decent rugby player at that point, but I I was unfit. I was completely out of shape. Uh, and when I listened to it, I started a chain of um, action and behavior that has continued to this day. And I just constantly kind of 
re- like I was I was it was almost like it was proven right and then I I anchored onto that then I did it again and I anchored onto that I listened to my gut or my intuition or my internal compass and I and every time I did it I was proven right and then over the years when I found myself down avenues where I was lost I realized I wasn't listening to my gut. I wasn't listening to what I knew was right. I wasn't doing, I wasn't connecting with what I knew was the right thing for me. And then I had a long way to come out of that and start again. So um, I hope that makes sense. But that's um, that's something that has, has led me very well. And, and when I've done it, I've reinforced it. Uh, sorry, it's been reinforced that it's the right thing to do. And when I haven't done it, it's been clear to me that, you know, I was doing something that was didn't align with, you know, me, Damien Brown, my values. And um, it was it was a hard road out of that. So, yeah, I continue to listen to that kind of intuition now. And it continues to lead me well. As hard as it is, it can be very... I find it can be very contrary to the societal kind of messaging and the tidal wave of action that the I want to say the masses and I I understand that that might be a bit condescending but it's not meant like that but anyway yeah so to kind of be have the strength and the integrity to kind of do you and stand by your intuition, even though it might be the flow might be massively against you, you know, and to stand firm and stand there with kind of honor and, and strength and dignity. And I, yeah. Yeah, totally. I love that. Absolutely love that. That's an extremely important point. Where can people find you and support and maybe support Project Empower as well, then, Damien? DamienBrown.com, or um, as you mentioned, probably the social media wise, the one I'm most active on is um, Instagram, which is at old uh, auld underscore stock and um, project empower is projectempower.ie so um yeah i've got some really really exciting things on the horizon so yeah i hope people want to kind of follow along i uh, definitely definitely encourage everyone to do so it's a blast all right boss thanks a ton Cheers. yeah thank you very much appreciate it If what you've heard on Flow Research Collective Radio has been helpful, please consider doing us a solid and leaving us a review on Apple, Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this. Reviews help us connect to a wider audience so we can get these peak performance principles out to more people.